Hey everyone, before we start the show, I just wanted to make a little announcement. This is a pretty exciting episode for us, not because of the content, but rather where it was created. This is the first episode recorded and mixed in our brand new studio. For the past five and a half years, I've been recording the podcast in our basement studio, and it hasn't been a very ideal space. With the house full of kids and three dogs running above my head at any given time while I'm trying to record, has been a bit frustrating trying to get the show done. So I guess it was around the time when the pandemic started, we started seeing posts of people putting office pods in their backyards to give them more space to work in when they were working from home. And I remember showing back one of the ads for these pods, and she said, well, you know, if we remove one of the trees in the backyard, we could fit one right in the corner. And I was like, are you kidding? We need to make that happen. And after a few months, our dream has come to fruition. And if you don't follow us online, you can check us out on Instagram, as I've been posting pictures of the progress of the build. This studio is beyond our expectations, and there's some people I'd like to thank that helped us get us here. Firstly, I'd like to thank Monaco Construction. Trevor, Jay Roberts, Liam, and Brittany were an absolute pleasure to work with. The level of detail they put into building this studio was incredible. They came up with ideas to soundproof it that I didn't even know existed. And they don't just build office pods or recording studios. They even build outdoor bathrooms. Whether you're an artist that needs some more space, or you're now working from home and you need some place to work, this company can build it all. And if you're in the GTA and looking to expand your living space beyond your household, you've got to check them out online at monacoconstruction.com. I'd also like to thank Gil from City Soundproofing. They installed all the interior soundproofing panels in the studio. And I can't forget the sound pros that answered all my questions regarding my new audio setup. George Catapan from Catapan Productions. And Aiden Wolf, the host of the YouTube channel, Dark Corner Studios. He's my go-to whenever I want to see a review on a microphone or a piece of recording equipment. Lastly, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, our sponsors, our incredible network Wondery, and you, our listeners. Because if it wasn't for you, there wouldn't be a show. And finally, I'd like to thank one of my best pals, Pete. He helped me have the time to be able to make sure this job got done, and I didn't lose my mind in the process. So it's been a crazy couple of months over here at Team Madness, but we are so happy. And again, we'd like to thank all of you. And with that, on with the show. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On August 4, 2015, in Pensacola, Florida, Escambia County Sheriff David Morgan delivered a disturbing press conference, giving insight into a recent triple homicide that had taken place inside a quiet suburban home. The grisly crime scene he described and the brutal way the victims had been murdered was disturbing. 
but it's what he said next that sent chills down reporters' spines. The murders appeared to have been ritualistic, part of some sort of witchcraft ceremony, coinciding with the recent and rare blue moon. Join me now as we take a look at the Smith family murders, a disturbing triple homicide that shocked the Florida panhandle. You'll hear how investigators latched onto a theory sensationalized in the media, only to discover that the real motive appeared to be much more simple, a motive as old as crime itself, greed. In 2015, Richard Thomas Smith was a computer specialist for the Department of Homeland Security in Pensacola, Florida. A man of extreme routine. Some would call him a type A personality, but those who knew him best called him OCD. Whatever Richard was working on for Homeland was defined as classified. Only his co-workers had any clue what exactly he did for a living. Perhaps due to the secrecy and isolated nature of his work, Richard's co-workers, Tammy and Dave, became his only close friends. Each day, Richard would drive the three of them out for lunch, always to the same few restaurants. Their orders also rarely changed, with each of them knowing the other's orders by heart. Richard wasn't just a man of routine, he was part of a team of routine. Outside of work, Richard didn't socialize, and his home life was every bit as predictable and methodical as his work life. On the way home from work each day, Richard always stopped to give his 47-year-old brother, John, a ride home from the Walmart he worked at. The same Walmart he worked at for nearly 25 years as a cart pusher. John was forced to rely on his brother for rides because he wasn't able to drive himself due to a disability caused by complications during his birth. John's co-workers at Walmart knew him to be extremely friendly, polite, and generally quiet. Unless, of course, they got him talking about his favorite subject, Alabama football, a passion he also shared with his brother Richard. Beyond their mutual love for college football, it was easy to see they were brothers just by looking at them. John and Richard had similar builds, both six foot four and around 300 pounds. Their dark hair and facial features also bore a strong family resemblance impossible to mistake. Each evening, the brothers would drive home to a quiet single-story home they shared with their 78-year-old mother, Von Seal, also affectionately called by her middle name, Bonnie. And at the Smith's home, life was pretty uneventful. Aside from the odd delivery or repairman, they never really had any visitors, which seemed to suit them just fine. Something that seemed to keep Von Seal busy over the years was an addiction she'd developed, buying things off of QVC, a TV shopping network compulsively buying items she fancied while sitting in her favorite chair, spending upwards of $6,000 each week. As a result, her home had become jam-packed with hordes of trinkets and clothing, closets overflowing, entire racks of clothes, most of which had never been worn, taking up much of the floor space. Whenever Richard wasn't working, serving as the family's caretaker took up all of his free time, driving John and Von Seal to their various doctor's appointments and doing the bulk of the chores, including cooking them dinner every evening. Every evening, that is, except on Tuesdays, because on Tuesdays, 
Richard and John's older half-brother Donald would come over to do the cooking. Donald Wayne Hartung was Von Seal Smith's first child, a child whose father abandoned them when Donald was just three weeks old, leaving Von Seal to raise him on her own. That's until she met Richard Smith, a man Von Seal married when Donald was around seven. Richard was a good father to Donald and soon became a father of two sons of his own, Richard and John. Richard, the father, was a career man with the Navy, retiring after 20 years before joining the civil service for another 22 years. When Richard passed away in 2012, from complications due to Parkinson's disease, Von Seel continued to receive his two retirement pensions, which made the family considerably more wealthy than they may have appeared to outsiders. Unlike his brothers, Donald lived on his own about three miles away in a place he'd been renting for 15 years. He was employed as a hospital security guard and on the whole was much more sociable than the rest of the family. But Donald was a man of routine too. Every single Tuesday, for as long as anyone could remember, Donald would go over to his mother's house to cook dinner for her and John, giving Richard a weekly opportunity to stay at work a little later, to catch up on any backlogs at Homeland Security. But Donald always made sure to cook extra for Richard, keeping it warm in the oven so he could eat it when he got home. And for years, Von Seel and her son stuck to that routine. It never changed, and seemed as though it never would. On Tuesday, July 28, 2015, Richard told his boss and his co-workers he was taking the next day off to take John to a doctor's appointment. That day he stayed late, like he always did on Tuesdays, before leaving work around 6.30 p.m. Later that evening, Richard's co-worker Tammy had sent him a few text messages, but Richard never responded, which was strange, because Richard always messaged back. Because he'd scheduled Wednesday off to take care of John, nobody was concerned when he didn't come into work that day, but it was very odd when he failed to show up on Thursday. In fact, it was the first time in his 25-year career he'd ever missed a single day of work without telling anyone. When he didn't show up on Friday, the alarm was officially raised. Richard's supervisor, Hal McCord, couldn't get in touch with Richard all morning, calling both his personal and work phones. Fearing he might have suffered a medical emergency, Hal drove over to Richard's house to check in on him. But when Hal knocked on all of the doors, rang the doorbells, and called out repeatedly, no one answered. So he called 911, asking if a police officer could come by to perform a welfare check. Just after 9.30 a.m., police arrived at the Smith's home and got a hold of Donald, asking him to come by the residence as well. After arriving, Donald gave police permission to enter, but the door was locked and Donald didn't have a key because he never needed one. Von Seal was quite literally always home. Using only a credit card, EMTs managed to jimmy the lock open on the back door. But when Deputy Smith stepped inside, what greeted him was more horrific than the medical emergency that Hal McCord had originally feared. So we walked in, we ended up going towards the right of the residence, which was through like the living room and the kitchen and down the hallway. We still weren't sure if there was maybe someone actually in the residence, so we were obviously calling out saying, hey, sheriff's office, you know, come out, whatever. 
As we went down the hallway, we smelled an overwhelming smell of a dead body, but we wanted to go back and check the other side of the residence first, just to make sure there wasn't anyone over there. There was a laundry room with a door that was closed. So we ended up deciding to go through that closed door. As I opened the door, I immediately saw blood spatter on some cardboard boxes that were sitting up on a bed. I guess it was kind of like a bedroom, like there was a bed in there, but obviously with all the clothing and everything, um, it was kind of, I guess, chaotic or whatnot, but there was a love seat and there was a bed in there. So it appeared someone would probably sleep in there. And then on the floor directly in front of me, there was like a large mass of like clothing and blankets. I put on some gloves and then I started to peel back the clothing and the blankets. And as I started to peel it back, I saw a, uh, a large shoe. Um, it looked on to be on like a white man's body. I touched the ankle. It was cold. The deputies quickly informed their supervisors. They discovered a body and detectives were immediately dispatched to the scene. But before they could arrive, Deputy Smith uncovered two more bodies. Then there was another large mass to my right. Um, it was like on like a love seat. I started peeling the clothing back and the blankets. And then I saw a, a bare white foot. It also appeared to be a male. I touched it. It was cold and there was a lividity present. We obviously didn't know who they were, but uh, I pronounced them at approximately 1114. We went back the other end of the residence, there was another bedroom door that was closed. So we opened up that door and there was a huge mound of clothing, blankets on the floor of that bedroom. I did the same thing. I started just slowly peeling back a little bit. I saw it appeared to be like an elderly female's hand. It was a white female. Touched it, it was cold. There was some lividity in the fingers. And so I pronounced her at approximately 1117. Outside in the driveway, Donald watched as police and EMTs went about their jobs. Eventually, deputies informed Donald that Richard, John, and Von Seal were all deceased, but couldn't offer him any more details. The officers would later describe Donald as being upset, nervous, and stressed hearing the news. Although he didn't cry, nothing in Donald's demeanor had raised any red flags in the officers' minds. Around 12.30, Lead Detective Matt Infinger arrived at the residence to take a brief look inside. The crime scene was a forensic investigator's worst nightmare, a triple homicide bloodbath inside a hoarder's house. Infinger couldn't learn much until the crime scene techs were allowed in to do their job and process the scene. Instead, he decided to interview the victim's only close family member and last person known to have seen them alive. Donald was taken to the police station, where he agreed to sit down with Detective Infinger and conduct a formal interview without a lawyer present. I guess you know why you're down here to talk about your mom and your brothers, okay? As they told you out there on the scene, they are deceased, okay? Before we talk about all that, I want to read you your rights, because I don't know what's going on yet. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you, can, anything you say can be used as evidence against you in court, you have the right to have a lawyer present while being questioned. For about the next 15 minutes, Infinger asked Donald about his family, their history, and about Donald's relationship with them. He also asked Donald for his version of the events leading up to the discovery that Tuesday. So what time do you think you got there? Uh, about one. Was it raining that day or anything? No, because... Of 
as soon as I got there, I started playing with my dog. Okay. So you got there around one. When you got there at one, did you go in the house at all? Uh, well, I always... Did you go in the house first and let them know you were there, or what'd you do? No, I don't ever do that. I just started playing frisbee with Zena. You know, I throw it for a few times, and then I then I go in. Do you take the dog in, or you leave it in the backyard? Zena stays outside. Bear's in the house. Who? Bear. Oh, that white dog? Yeah. Who was there when you got there? Oh, uh, Mama and John. They were both already there? Yeah. So you get there at one, play with the dog. Yeah. What do you do when you go inside? Go inside, talk to Mom. Where was she? Mama's always in her chair. In the den? In the den. Where was John? John's up and about, but he's pretty much always in that back bedroom watching that television back there. That's where he is most of the time. Okay. About what time do you think you started cooking dinner? I got over there earlier than I normally do. I think I started about 2.30. And I think we ate about 3.30, close to 4. John did the dishes. I helped him. I helped him load the ones in the dishwasher, and he did the pots and pans. After you got done with the dishes, what did you do? Went outside, smoked a cigarette, played with the dogs. I always do that. After you got done eating, cleaning the dishes, what did you do? I went in there and sat with Mom. We watch QVC. She watches QVC just about all the time. And then we flipped it over to Channel 55 to watch Fox News some. Do you know what time Richard got home that night? I, I don't know what time he got in. What time you think it was when you left? Six o'clock at latest, maybe 5.30. Keep in mind, this interview took place barely an hour after Infinger was given the case. Neither the time of death nor the cause of death had yet been determined, and almost everything they knew about the Smith family was coming directly from Donald himself, who hadn't yet been informed that his family's deaths were most likely homicides. There were, however, a couple of factors starting to bother the detective. To him, Donald wasn't displaying the typical emotions for a person who just learned their entire family was dead. He seemed too calm, collected and nonchalant, almost as if he'd had some time to prepare himself for this moment. Reports from the crime scene also indicated that whoever had killed the Smith family was someone they must have known. Someone, at least, they felt comfortable enough to let inside while they sat down to watch TV. And according to Donald himself, he was the only person who ever visited the house. And at this point, police felt there were two distinct possibilities. Either Donald was an innocent victim who just lost his entire family in a terrible tragedy, or he was a murderer. And the more the detective talked to Donald, the more his gut told him it was the latter. So in a strategic move, he decided to break the news to him that his family had been murdered in a less than sensitive way. Did they tell you your folks, your family over there was killed? Killed? They said they were deceased and they never told me how they were killed. They're dead. Uh, and it looks like they were killed. Killed? Mm-hmm. A few minutes later, Infinger doubled down on his attempts to get a rise out of Donald. 
whoever killed the gnome, because your brother just sitting there in his chair, and somebody probably just shot him. Whoever shot him had to know him, because he didn't think they were a threat. He's just sitting there minding his own business watching TV. Who else would they let in their house and would be comfortable with in their house? And then John gets home, and then RT gets home, and then you're probably still there waiting on him. No, sir. I did not kill my family. I did not kill my family. I love my family. I love my mother very much. I would never harm anybody in my family. I mean, it makes no sense for somebody to come in there, a total stranger, and to kill them the way that they were killed and put that much stuff on top of them. It makes no sense whatsoever. Whoever did this... It makes no sense for me to go in there and do something like that either. Why? You yeah, know why? Them. You know them. Of course I know them. I love them. That's my family. Exactly, and you couldn't stand the thought of sitting there seeing them after you killed them, so you put this stuff over them. Now the question is, why would you kill them? By this point, Infinger seemed all but convinced Donald was guilty, an opinion based largely on Donald's apparent lack of emotion. You mean you're going to come in here and tell me you got three people dead in a house? Yes. You're going to come in here, you were the last one to see them, and I've told you that your mom was shot and drugged to her bedroom, and you're going to sit here and not show any emotion whatsoever? No, you killed these people. You killed your family. No, I didn't. Why? I did not kill my family. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. How can you sit there and have no remorse about what's happened? Show I no emotion. Remorse, but right now, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like I'm being accused of something here. That I, I am accusing you of doing it. I think you did it. I did not do it. It would turn out John and Von Seal had not in fact been shot, but because the chaotic crime scene had barely been processed at all, this is what Infinger believed to be true at the time of this interview. And despite having such an incomplete picture of the facts, he repeatedly accuses Donald of murdering his family. Why'd you kill him? Why would I kill him? Why did you? I did not kill my family, sir. I did not. I did not kill him. No way. Why would I do it? Why would I kill my mother and my brothers when I've been living down here for 15 years? Because they're not your real brothers, and they're over there living with they your mom. They were just like my real brothers. Probably getting whatever they wanted. During the entire interview, Donald sticks to his story, repeatedly denying he had anything to do with his family's murder. Well, I promise you this, I'm going to find out. I know and you if will. If you did it, I'm going to find out and I'm going to put your ass in jail. I would not harm my family, sir, for nothing in this world. You take a lie detector test? Yeah. I don't see why not. Tell you right now? Yeah. All right. Let me go see if I can find somebody to give me one. For the next two hours, the detective continues trying to break Donald, even using his pet dog for emotional leverage. Would you be upset if that dog died? Damn right I'd be upset. I don't know what I'd do if anything. It's like losing part of the family. Well, that's the only family you got left now because the rest of your family's gone. I know that. You told me that. And that's all I got. If I lost that dog, I'd be really, really upset. How upset would you be? I'd be about like I I'd be I'd be about like I am now. Maybe not quite this bad, but I'd be upset. So not very upset. 
What makes you say that? I mean, you don't seem like you're upset at all. Oh, I'm upset. Maybe you don't know it, but I know it. I mean, somebody went in there and shot your mother. My mother? Put a bullet in her. Put a bullet in her? Yeah. What do you think about that? I think I'd like to know who did it. That's what I think I know about. That's, that's what I think I'd like to know about. Donald was never actually given that lie detector test. Infinger would later testify that no polygraph administrators were available at the time. After the interview, Detective Infinger returned to the crime scene and got a much more accurate picture of what had happened to the Smith family. And it was nothing like the gunshots he'd told Donald about. Both John and Von Seal had been beaten with a blunt object to their heads, most likely a hammer. Their throats had also been cut with a knife. Each of them were sitting in their favorite spots when they were murdered. John on a small love seat, Von Seal in her TV chair. John's body was left on the couch and covered with layers of blankets and clothing. Von Seal had been dragged through the hallway and placed on the floor of John's bedroom before also being covered with a mountain of blankets and clothing. When Richard walked in the house later that evening, he was ambushed by a gunshot to his head. His throat was then slashed, and two layers of clothing were left covering his body. The brutality of the murders, in addition to the placement of the bodies beneath layers of clothing and blankets, made detectives wonder if there was some hidden, perhaps ritualistic meaning behind the murders. Part of this theory stemmed from items found while investigators searched Donald's house. A Ouija board, occult symbols, dozens of candles, and some books on Wicca, a pagan religion often associated with witchcraft. Later that night, detectives decided to bring Donald back for a second interview and woke him up at his home around 1 a.m. and brought him back into the station. That, that wicked stuff and these ceremonies or whatever you do, do you have anything like sacrifices or anything? No. No, there's no sacrifices in Wicca. Really? No. The Wiccan read is, and it harm none, do as you please. That's the Wiccan read. That's the basis of Wiccan. I did some reading on it before I talked to you about it. And in some of these Wiccan things, uh, like especially this time of the year, when there's two full moons, sometimes they'll offer a sacrifice. <laughs> well, I don't offer sacrifices ever. <laughs> well, it described it the way that... It's a blue moon. It's a blue moon. Yeah, and it's very, very rare. Well, it's kind of interesting what they do. They drain the blood out of their sacrifice and hit them in the head. Then they cover them to keep them warm. I don't know anything about that. I mean, I, I've never sacrificed. I, I wouldn't hurt a chicken. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hurt nothing. I would never hurt an animal. Well, what's ironic about all this is that's the same way your family was killed. Now, if Donald Hartung had indeed murdered his family, he would have known all this already. But if he hadn't, this was the first time Donald learned what had really happened to his family. That's the same way my family was killed. Hmm. They were shot in the head, right? No. How were they killed? I just explained it to you. Tell me again, please. They were what? Why don't you tell me what you did to them? I didn't do anything to my family. Yeah, sir. you did. 
We're not going to go through that again. You did, okay? No, sir. I've been over to the house. I've looked at everything. You went over there, and you killed your mother. Then you killed your brother. And then you waited. And RT got home, and you killed him. Okay? No, sir. And you killed them all the same way. Stab them. Stabbing? They were stabbed? Mm-hmm. My God. I thought you said they were shot in the head. I did tell you that last time. The detective's understanding of Wicca had come from a haphazard online search done by another officer, whose findings were entirely off base. In fact, none of the sacrifices or blue moon rituals that Infinger accused Donald of performing are found anywhere in the Wicca religion. Unfortunately, it would be a long time before detectives would understand. Wicca had played no part in the triple homicide. Donald, are you a cold-blooded killer? No. No, sir, I'm not a cold-blooded killer. I'm not a cold-blooded person. You know, remember when I, I mean, talked to you about your dog earlier today? Yes, Zena. You showed emotion when we talked about your dog. How if somebody killed your dog, cut your dog's throat, let it lay there and just bleed all over the place, flail around, struggle for its last breath. Yeah, I'd be horrified. Well, I mean, what goes through your mind when you think about that? Imagine your mom. I don't know what goes through my mind when I think about that. That's just terrible. Think about your mom doing the same thing. I don't want to think about my mom doing that. I don't want to think about anybody hurt my dog or my mama. Somebody cut her throat. She sat there and suffered and bled all over the place. Somebody, like you. Not me. Treat her like a piece of garbage. Just drug her down the hall into a room, threw clothes on top of her and left her just left her like a piece of garbage. I'd never do that to my mother. Never. And then you did the same thing to your brothers. Cut their throat. I would never. Can you imagine what they went through? From the interviews, it seems pretty clear detectives were already convinced Donald was guilty within just 12 hours of taking the case. But what if he wasn't? Imagine asking a potentially innocent person to picture their own dog having its throat slit before comparing the scene to what had actually happened to their own mother. We're all familiar with the good cop, bad cop routine, playing hardball during an interrogation, but some of these lines were downright cruel. Police became convinced witchcraft had been the motivation behind the killings. They were so convinced, in fact, they announced it publicly on August 4th, 2015. The elements of this case are odd at best. You know, we have a very reclusive family. The method of death, we believe, through Dr. Minyard's office, was blunt force trauma. We believe the weapon was a claw hammer. Multiple blows were struck on each and every victim. Their throats were slit, also, each and every victim. Our person of interest uh, has some ties to a, a faith and or religion that is indicative. That. Those of you that follow any of that will also note that uh, you know the time of death we believe on Tuesday also coincides uh, with what's referred to as a blue moon, which occurs every three years. It's uh, witchcraft. I'll, I'll say that right now. After the press conference, the media had a field day and began referring to the murders as the blue moon triple homicide 
and because of its sensationalistic elements, the case made headlines all around the world. And after Donald Hartung was arrested a few months later, in October 2015, he of course became known as the Blue Moon Killer. It would take more than four years for Donald's case to finally go to trial, but during that time, new information came to light, causing the prosecution and police to abandon their witchcraft theory. The motive, it seemed, was something far more simple, money. All signs indicated that the Smith family had been murdered on Tuesday evening, July 28, 2015. Richard's body was discovered still wearing the same clothes he'd left for work in, and his security badge was even around his neck. Likewise, John failed to show up for his doctor's appointment on Wednesday, and Von Seal's Tuesday night prescription pills were never taken. The only question was whether or not they'd been murdered before or after Donald had left the house. According to Donald, he'd left his mother's house around 5.30 p.m., an hour before Richard even left work. However, the next-door neighbor told police he'd seen Donald leaving much later than that, which was around 7.45 p.m. that time of year. Most importantly, the neighbor specifically remembered that Richard had arrived home before Donald left, and if that was true, it could really only mean one thing, that Donald had been lying the entire time. Whoever murdered Von Seel and John had cleaned up the scene before Richard came home. They knew this because a trash can was found inside the house containing bloody towels and other evidence of the cleanup. But mixed in among the items was a cigarette butt with Donald's DNA on it. To investigators, this proved Donald had smoked a cigarette while cleaning up the scene. Otherwise, it would have been in the bottom of the trash can. Donald's DNA was also found on the inside of Richard's belt, presumably from moving the body. However, the overall forensic handling of the case was, quite frankly, appalling. Just to give one example, after the investigation concluded and police had released the scene, a cleaning crew was sent in. But while they were moving some of the furniture, two bloody knives fell out of the cushions. One from the love seat where John was killed, one from a chair nearby. Both would later be proven not to be the murder weapons. But the fact they'd been missed entirely by the investigators speaks volumes. The most confounding question, however, was motivation. Why on earth would Donald murder his three closest family members? Detectives believed they discovered a clue when they were given a copy of Von Seel's last will and testament. In the will, Von Seel left everything to John and Richard and stated, I intentionally make no provision herein to the benefit of my son, Donald Wayne Hartung Jr., not for a lack of love or affection, but because he has sufficient assets of his own. The theory was that Donald had become aware of the contents of his mother's will and was enraged at being left out. So in order to inherit his family's money, close to a million dollars, all three would need to die in order for the money to be passed on to him. The totality of this evidence was enough to convince police they had the right man, but it was highly circumstantial and hardly enough to convict a person of murder. Police, however, caught a break six months after Donald's arrest when a prison inmate claimed Donald had confessed the murders to him. It's a well-established fact 
that the leading cause of wrongful convictions in United States capital cases is false informant testimony, or snitching. But despite this being true, the use of jailhouse informants at trials remains incredibly common. In Donald's case, the snitch named Marlon Purifoy seemed to know all the important details, some details that even police had been unaware of. According to Marlon, Donald had secretly hated his mother for favoring his two brothers over him. He'd learned about the contents of her will and had been planning their murders ever since. After killing John, Marlon claimed Donald then tortured his mother by cutting off the tip of her left pinky finger. The reason for this, he said, was to get Von Seal to give him the combinations to the two safes kept in the house. His mother then apparently told him they were written down on a piece of paper in her purse, which Donald then retrieved. After he um, did this to his brother and his mom, did he say what he did? He said he went in and got the stuff, like money out of the, uh, the safe and stuff in his mama's room. He said there was a safe in his mom's room? Yeah, in the closet. Other than the safe in the mother's room, did he tell you about any other safes? Yeah, he, said, he told me about another safe too. Okay, and what about that? He said he got money out of that safe. Did he say where um, that safe was? No, he didn't really say where that safe was. Now, did he tell you how he knew where the safes were in this house? He said he always snoop around the house. He didn't know where it was. The fact that Marlon mentioned two safes was crucial. During the initial investigation, detectives did discover one safe in Richard's closet, which had been left open. But confusingly, more than $13,000 worth of cash was still left inside. However, police didn't even know that the second safe existed until they spoke to Marlon. It was located in Von Seal's closet under a mountain of belongings, hidden beneath the carpet and concreted into the home's foundation. If they couldn't even find a bloody knife in the same chair one of the victims was murdered in, what chances did they have to ever finding that second safe? According to Marlon, Donald had taken more than $300,000 from one of these safes. While inmates are in jail awaiting trial, they're required to keep all their legal paperwork with them in their cells. Donald's lawyers argued it would have been easy for Marlon to look through Donald's discovery and probate documents to get the kind of information he provided them whenever Donald was out of his cell. The detail about Von Seal's pinky finger, however, was the key. In every police report, Von Seal's pinky had been classified as a defensive injury. There was never any mention of torture. In fact, the pinky cut was so blunt that the medical examiner guessed it may have been severed by a screwdriver, a pair of scissors, or even the claw end of a hammer. The only evidence that Von Seal's pinky was the result of torture, as opposed to a defensive wound, was the claims being made by a jailhouse snitch. Investigators also found a piece of paper on a shelf at Donald's house. On that piece of paper were written six numbers, two sets of three, that appeared to be in Von Seal's handwriting. During the trial, the prosecutor claimed these numbers were the safe combinations that Donald had taken out of Von Seal's purse after torturing her. 25, 26, 28. One safe. As she spoke these words to the jury during her closing arguments, the prosecutor turned 
an imaginary dial as she read off the numbers. 37, 42, 52. Second save. There can be no doubt this was a watershed moment for the jury. The fact that Donald had a handwritten piece of paper with the safe combinations in Von Seal's handwriting was presented as the smoking gun. But there was one major problem. There was zero evidence introduced in the trial to suggest those numbers were actually the combinations to either of the two safes. It was never even proven that the safes required three-digit combinations. For all anyone knew, the six digits written on that piece of paper could have just as easily been lottery numbers. There was also a major contradiction in the prosecution's theory itself. They claimed Donald had tortured Von Seal to get the combinations of the safes so he could take their money. But they also claimed that Donald had killed his entire family in order to inherit their estate. Why would he need to steal from the safes if he was going to get everything anyway? The prosecutor at trial did a truly masterful job of assembling a laundry list of questionable circumstantial evidence into a single, powerful, cohesive narrative for the jury. And this feat was even more impressive, considering that every single key piece of evidence was presented by a witness who had serious flaws. The entire financial motive was corroborated by a jailhouse snitch looking for leniency on a life sentence for attempted murder. All the forensic evidence was collected by a crime scene tech who would later be arrested for stealing prescription pills from the evidence room. She was facing a minimum sentence of eight years in prison, but was reduced to probation and house arrest, zero jail time, in exchange for her testimony in Donald's trial. But perhaps the oddest of all was the neighbor who testified that Richard had come home before Donald left the house that night. On the witness stand, the neighbor came across as an extremely likable, understanding, honest, and credible man. And we have no reason to doubt that he is all of these things. But it's worth mentioning here that studies have shown that the second leading cause of wrongful convictions is mistaken eyewitnesses. And this eyewitness was interviewed more than eight weeks after the night of the murders. The prosecutor started out by establishing the credibility of the retired neighbor's memory, having him describe what the Smith's dog looked like, what cars they owned, who drove which car, and the family's comings and goings. Did you ever see John drive? No, ma'am, I did not. Did you see the other son drive? That would be RT? Yes. Yes. And what type, of, what type of car did he drive? He drove a white Toyota uh, SUV. Um, I think it might have been a Highlander. Did they have any animals that you saw? Yes. Uh, they originally had a small poodle, uh, and then they got an, another dog, which was uh, a terrier. Uh, I think it was a Highland. Can you describe the Highland Terrier? The single most important fact in this entire trial was what time Donald had left his mother's house that day. And the only person on earth who'd witnessed Donald leaving was a man who never wore a watch, didn't have clocks in his house, and proudly didn't ever want to know what time it was. On Tuesday the 28th, do you remember approximately what time he got to the house that day? 
it was early afternoon. I cannot tell you an exact time because it, I, I don't wear a watch. Why don't you wear a watch? During my time in the fire department, I carried two radios, two pages, and two watches. Subsequently, when we went into the wedding business, and we carried phones, four watches, lots of time and communication uh, devices. And when we retired, we said, no more phones, no more radio, no more watches. <laughs> and that was that. By the end of his testimony, it was almost believable that the neighbor's sense of time was more accurate than any watch. Did you see Mr. Hartung leave the Smith family, family home on July 28th? Yes, I did. And I know your watch list at that time, but do you remember approximately what time it was? Twilight. And can you tell us what twilight is? Well, it's once the sun sets, so to speak, but it is still light enough. There's no harsh shadows, but light enough to carry on normal business. Do you remember when sunset was back then? I think it was about 740, 46 or somewhere in there. In the end, Donald Hartung simply didn't have an alibi, and the police couldn't think of a single other person who would have had motive. His story was that he left his mother's house, drove home, and watched TV by himself. This combined with his DNA appearing in places it shouldn't have, the alleged jailhouse confession, and an eyewitness seeing him at the crime scene at the time of the murders. All of it added up to paint a very damning picture. And although Donald's connection to Wicca was never officially presented as a motivation by the prosecution, hints, insinuations, and photos of occult imagery taken at Donald's home were all shown to the jury throughout the trial. After only four hours of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of guilty and recommended a sentence of life in prison. To this day, Donald maintains his innocence. Before sentencing, friends and family of the Smiths were invited to read impact statements to the court, and although the family had been fairly reclusive, the statements revealed just how much Von Seal, Richard, and John had meant to those closest to them. Von Seal's niece, Faye Haas, ended her statement with these words. This tragedy has forever changed my life from the day I heard about it. It's been very hard. There's not a day that goes by I don't think about them. Aunt Bonnie, R.T., and John. Lots of sleepless nights and many days and nights crying myself to sleep, trying hard not to think of what they went through that day, how they suffered. Some days are better than others. The pain I feel comes and goes in waves, but it is always there. It never goes away. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, Least of These. Least of These is a true crime podcast covering the victims that no one talks about. 
Join me, your host, Leah D., each week and take a deep dive into cases that you won't find in the headlines. Like the case of a veteran of two wars whose death was initially blamed on a heart condition. That was until police were tipped off about a mystery woman using a stolen credit card. Or the residential school for disabled students with a dark history, where six deaths and countless abuse cases occurred. A school that is still in operation today using a treatment method deemed torture by the United Nations. Or the cold-blooded murder of a woman in India, whose husband consulted a snake charmer in order to kill her and almost got away with it. Or Robert Willie Picton, the Canadian serial killer. Everyone knows his story, but do you know the story of the 49 victims or the woman who nearly killed him? Least of These is a podcast that advocates for the victims, telling their stories because their stories matter. Join me every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, Start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.